I'm happy to introduce our speaker tonight, Mr. Charles Kenny. Charles Kenny is a senior fellow at the Center for Global Development and a Schwartz Fellow at the New America Foundation. He is on leave from the World Bank, where he is a senior economist. Kenny is a contributing editor at Foreign Policy and has written for Time, Washington Monthly, the South China Morning Post, and The Globalist, as well as numerous academic journals. He lives in Washington, D.C. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Charles Kenny. So here's the problem with, with my book. It's about exciting stuff that doesn't happen. <clears throat> uh, it's about how much more frequently around the world we're seeing just nothing much going on. Nobody starves, nobody gets sick, nobody gets shot, nobody dies. Kids go off to school, parents go off to work, they come back, they return to food on the table, and a peaceful night's sleep. Tolstoy kind of famously dissed writing about such families, right? All, all happy families are the same. What's the excitement there? So nothing is a, a difficult thing to sell. Um, and, and there was a, a wonderful children's book that came out a few years ago that, that really, I think, demonstrates the point. Um, it's by the author of the comic, comic strip, Mutz, uh, and it's about Mooch the cat, uh, who wants to give his friend Earl the dog um, a present. But Earl already has everything that a dog could possibly want, right? He's got the chew toy, and he's got the bed, and yeah. He, he, he's a content dog. So Mooch decides to get a big empty box, put a bow around it, and, and hand it over to his friend Earl. And, and the dog opens the box and says, but you know, there's nothing here. Uh, to which Mooch replies, yes, nothing but you and me. And they go off poor and poor and, and go and stare at the stars uh, for the rest of the evening. Um, it's a beautiful book. It's perfectly illustrated. Um, it has a, an average five-star rating on, on, online. And it has a sales rank of 127,749 on Amazon. <laughs> Nothing is hard to sell, but it really matters. Um, and that the world is becoming more and more banal every day is truly wonderful. And the story of, of, of nothing and why there's nothing going on more um, is, is what, what this book is about. I want to get to all the sort of the, the good news part in a minute, um, but, but just so that you don't think I'm completely Panglossian, I want to start with a story about some bad news regarding nothing, which is a lot of people worldwide today are no richer than their parents, no richer than their grandparents, no richer than their ancestors back to the start of time. Um, in the words of, of, of Harvard's uh, Lam Pritchett, we've seen um, income divergence big time. So in, in 1950, the gap between the richest and the poorest countries in terms of their average income was 33-fold. Already a big gap, right? 33 times richer in countries like the United States than in many countries in Africa. Today, that gap is not 33-fold. It's 137-fold. Um, that's the difference between the rich countries and the poor countries, the richest countries and the poor countries. 800 million people, give or take, uh, still live on about a dollar a day or less. Um, and you just can't get much poorer than that, because if you get much poorer than that, you starve. Um, a bit of good news is that it's 800 million today. Um, it was 1.5 billion in, in 1990. So you know, even, we are seeing some progress there. Um, but still, for a lot of people in a lot of countries, um, you know, one bit of nothing they've seen is no more money. Um, and the worst news is what lies behind that fact. Um, why there are people who still are as poor as they've ever been, in countries as poor as they've ever been, um, and, and, and what's behind it is history, and a lot of history. And history that I think can be illustrated using um, two stories. Uh, one of Mungo Park, who was a Scottish doctor, 
uh, an explorer, and then two American explorers, um, uh, everybody here will know, Lewis and Clark. Um, so Mungo Park was, was a Scottish doctor, but he had a bit of a wanderlust, um, and he decided that he was going to set, uh, set his targets on finding Timbuktu, which at the time was a, a legendary city. No, no Westerner, Westerner had seen it. Um, you know, it's a, it's a real place in, 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 in uh, West Africa, but no, no uh, 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 European had ever seen it. So in 1805, uh, uh, Mungo Park and 41 troops and an official artist and his brother-in-law along for the ride all set off um, from the Gambia and the west coast of Africa um, to try and find Timbuktu. Um, they set off on April 27th and they pretty soon ran into sort of rains and wild dogs and, and packs of lions and even a, a rather hungry and angry crocodile. Um, but none of that killed them. Uh, uh, they, they survived all of those challenges. Uh, what got them was the tropical diseases, uh, dysentery, um, uh, mosquito-borne diseases, and uh, a whole range. By August the 19th, they'd got 500 miles inland. Of the 43 original um, people in the expedition, um, only 12 were left, left alive. Um, they kept on going, and Park's last message, you know, the last one written in his hand that we have, um, said that there were, there were alive were, were three soldiers, one of whom was deranged, um, uh, Lieutenant Martin and, and myself. Um, a rescue mission later learned from uh, uh, one of the African porters uh, on the expedition um, that Park had actually reached Timbuktu. Um, he'd, he'd, he'd built a, uh, he'd got to the uh, uh, Niger River and he'd built a, um, a canoe and he'd sailed to Timbuktu, he didn't get off because um, the people didn't seem too happy to see him. Um, so he sailed on to the Gulf of Guinea, um, but, but sort of 300 miles, um, still 300 miles away from the, the Gulf of Guinea, um, he and the last uh, uh, other surviving person on the expedition, uh, Lieutenant Martin, uh, were, were ambushed by the Tuareg, um, and they jumped into the river and, and, and we believe drowned. But the point is, apart from those last two, the other 41 died from disease. And then when his son went to try and find him, he died of malaria. Meanwhile, halfway around the world, a bit less, uh, Lewis and Clark, uh, off on their expedition. Uh, they actually started two years before Mungo Park started. Um, and they ended uh, uh, their expedition after um, uh, 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 Mungo Park had already died. And they, you know, they met lots of locals on their, their travels, uh, 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 Sue and Blackfoot and various other... Uh, uh, Native American tribes, and they went all the way to the Pacific, heck of a long way. But despite this you know, longer time uh, they were traveling, uh, a lot of exposure to, to uh, locals, um, pretty much the only thing that that expedition got was a case of boils, one or two tumors. One out of the 33 people on the expedition died, and that one did not die from a tropical disease, he died from appendicitis. Now, same kind of exploration um, into unknown territories. Uh, very, very different outcome. Well, that's because Africa, uh, to this day, remains um, uh, home to a lot of diseases that we don't know how to deal with, um, in a way that North America, by the time Lewis and Clark were traveling around, there weren't any of those diseases around. Um, and there is a sort of rich economic literature now saying that these different stories between these different disease burdens explain a lot of what happened subsequently. So in places like North America and Australasia, 
uh, Europeans arrived, and they either, either the diseases they themselves carried killed off lots of, uh, of local people, um, and, and I'll talk more about smallpox later, but that was one of the big killers, um, and or they shot a lot of local people. Um, and you left with the Europeans sort of being the dominant demographic group. And because they all knew each other, uh, you ended up with, with fairly equal societies where public goods were provided, so you know, roads were built, schools uh, were built, and, and, and it, you know, early on became the expectation that everybody would go to schools. You ended up with, with societies destined for success. In Africa and in, in, in large parts of Latin America, um, you didn't have a lot of Europeans going there, and the ones you did kept on dying off. You ended up with a very small elite of Europeans running these colonies um, purely on, a, uh, uh, on the basis of extracting as much wealth as they could as fast as they possibly could. Very unequal societies, very few public goods, not much effort at all beyond a few um, mission groups to provide schooling. Um, and the effect of creating that kind of unequal society continued to this day. It's a story of institutions really mattering, how the rule, rule of law works, for example. How it, does it operate to, be, to try and equalize, or does it operate, uh, operate to, to try and um, separate an elite off from um, the rest of society? Um, economists, not satisfied with that, tried to go further back. So Bill Eastley from New York University says, well, you know, why is it some people were colonizers and other were, 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 others were colonized? And he says, well, it's all about who had um, uh, magnets and ocean-going boats. And the people who had that in 1500, they're all rich and the rest of the world is poor. And of course, if you read Jared Diamond, you know that, that we're just not being nearly ambitious enough. It's all about whether the continent that your ancestors came, on, came from is, is long that way or long that way. Uh, if it's long that way, like Asia and, and, and uh, like Eurasia is, going to be rich. If it's long that way, like Latin America, who you're in trouble. Um, uh, and Africa. So, you know, Jared Diamond said it's all about Pangaea. You can go too far in these stories. Look at North Korea versus South Korea, or East versus West Germany, right? Policies, politicians matter to outcomes, but the point remains that history really matters, and, and that's because institutions are slow to change, these, the, the rule of law, these things that are behind uh, 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 wealth, um, are very slow to change, so that pretty much the way to be rich today is to have been rich yesterday. So, how can I be confident about development progress? Um, all of these people are as poor as uh, all of these people as poor as they've ever been. Sub-Saharan Africa as a whole, um, uh, 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 only marginally richer than it was at independence, which was only marginally richer than it was, you know, at zero. Um, uh, uh, we don't really know how to speed income growth. What's there to smile about? Well, it's because if you look at about anything else apart from money, what we've seen is rapid, ubiquitous, worldwide progress towards this wonderful banality. We have seen a 75% reduction in global infant mortality over the past century or so, worldwide, from one child in five dying to one child in 20 dying um, before their first birthday. We're at a 60-year low in the terms of number of people um, dying on the battlefield worldwide. Um, according to the available measures of democracy and civil and political rights, there has never been a time in history when as so large a percentage of the world's population is living in fully democratic regimes 
that respect their rights. More than 87% of the world's children are in primary school. That's up from less than half 50 years ago. Poll people and ask them how happy they are. They are happier than they've ever been. Um, never ever in the recorded history of the world has beer production per capita been so high. Just, I could go on. Name your measure of progress, pretty much, and, 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 and things are better than they were. And it really is truly global progress, right? I'm not just talking about rich countries. So, according to, to Bill Eastley, again, from New York University, the proportion of the population of sub-Saharan Af Africa affected by famine between 1919 and 2005 was less than three-tenths of one percent. The proportion who were refugees in 2005 was five-tenths of one percent. The number who died in wars between 1965 and 2001 averaged one one-hundredth of one uh, percent. Now, these stories add up to despair for a lot of people, right? But they are stories of the small minority, and for the rest, progress really has been quite incredible. So, life expectancy in, in, in the region has gone up 10 years over the last 40 years. From 1970 to 2000, uh, literacy rates in sub-Saharan Africa increased from 28% to 61%. We went from less than a third to more than, way more than half of people being literate. Um, huge progress everywhere. What's driving it? Well, we know one thing that's not driving it, right? Money, because we've seen that money hasn't been, um, wealth hasn't been spreading everywhere. Indeed, we've seen huge divergence in incomes. But we also know that it can't be money, because when you look at countries that are getting poorer, um, things are still getting better, uh, a lot better. So we've got 12 countries which we know are poorer today than they were in 1960. They're poorer by an average of a quarter. So, you know, Rather than $400 per capita, they're at $300 per capita. So, uh, the countries are Haiti, Central African Republic, Cote d'Ivoire, Liberia, Madagascar, Nicaragua, Niger, Senegal, Sierra Leone, Venezuela, Zambia, and Zimbabwe. Now, in these countries, at the same time that income was plummeting, average life expectancy increased by an average of over 10 years. Adult literacy rates in every country, on average, doubled. It went up in every country and, on average, doubled. For the nine countries where we have some sort of measure of civil and political rights, um, they improved in seven out of the nine. So despite economic regress, these countries saw considerable progress uh, in the quality of life. There is just more to life than money. Now again, money matters, and I'll come back to that. If you have 800 million people living on $1.25 a day, can't afford a lot of stuff they really need, but the big success of development, of global development over the last 50 years, has been to make the cost of living lower. It's, it's, it's to reduce the cost of life, literally. Take an example of, of, of water, waterborne disease like cholera. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a foul disease that you basically die through dehydration because the diarrhea is so bad. Um, in 1849, there was an outbreak in London that killed 14,000 people. A wonderful book about, the, uh, about that outbreak and, and the results uh, called The Ghost Map. It lays out the story of this guy, John Snow, working out that um, uh, the cholera epidemic had started uh, at a single Broad Street uh, water pump uh, in London. Um, and, you know, it had a cracked pipe in it and, and excuse me, shit was uh, dripping into the pipe. And uh, that was, uh, there was cholera, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, bacteria in the, um, uh, in the waste, and it was getting into the water supply, and it was killing all these people. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Pasteur in France is coming up with the germ theory of disease. Between these two 
they managed to sort of persuade the powers that be that really the problem with cholera is not smell, which is what people used to think, miasma. Um, it's, it's, it's this problem with sewage. The response is probably one of the largest um, engineering efforts anywhere in the world up until that point. Um, if any of you have been in London and walked along the embankment, the embankment is um, artificial. It's built on top of very big pipes full of sewage um, built by a guy called Bazalgette um, to take all the sewage from London out to the east of a city. It worked. No more cholera outbreaks in London. It was hugely expensive. It was institutionally amazingly challenging. Fast forward 100 years. Bangladesh, 1971. Independence war. Bangladesh is fighting a, a vicious independence war against uh, 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 the rest of Pakistan. Um, it, you know, at the time, that was West, uh, uh, East Pakistan, um, Bangladesh. Um, nine million refugees are flooding across the Bangladeshi border into India. Cholera is breaking out everywhere. The death rates for people who, who get some of these waterborne diseases is 20 or 30 percent in these refugee camps. It's a disastrous situation. A doctor called uh, Dilip Mahalanabis was uh, running out of saline drip, which was the treatment that everybody thought was the best treatment at the time um, uh, for dealing with uh, uh, cholera and other waterborne diseases. Saline drips take you know, somebody there who knows how to take the bag, stick it in your arm. Um, it takes medical staff. It takes having lots of saline drips. He had neither. People were dying. So he went to what was considered almost anathema um, in the medical community, which was he got some water, he mixed in some sugar and some salt, and he said, OK, if you're a family member who's got a sick, uh, a, a sick uh, uh, you know, daughter or son or father or brother, just come and take as much of his water as you can carry in bottles and, and cups, take it back to, to your camp, take it back to your tent, and feed it to the person who has uh, a diarrhea, and keep on forcing them to drink this stuff until they can't stand the taste anymore. That's called oral rehydration therapy. It is a brilliant way to deal with um, uh, waterborne diseases. The death rate in that camp went down from 20 to 30 percent of people who, who had uh, uh, waterborne diseases dying to 2 or 3 percent. Oral rehydration therapy costs sense. You, just, you need water, sugar, salt. Cost sense, it could be done by untrained individuals, it could be done by anybody. We've gone from needing a, to deal with the problem of cholera, we've gone from needing an immensely complex, expensive institutional structure and um, you know, a lot of money to build sewage systems to needing some sugar and some salt and some water and people who understand that that will cure your diarrhea. It means that along with putting bleach in the water in the first place so people don't get sick, um, disinfectant bottles, so on and so forth, all means that the cost of preventing deaths from waterborne diseases has dropped through the floor over the last 100 years, and a lot fewer people die from them. Way too many still die, and I'll come back to that, but a lot fewer die than used to. So people as poor, poor as they've ever been get better health outcomes from that kind of thing. And it's partially because of technologies, right? It's new technologies, technologies like oral rehydration therapy. Or again, smallpox. I mentioned that smallpox was, was, was one of the great killers that, that made it easy for the Spanish to conquer Latin America. Um, about 3.5 million Aztec Americans died 
Aztec Indians died from um, smallpox after it was introduced by the Spanish. Um, over the course of the 20th century, it killed another 300 to 500 million people. In the next century, it should kill no one, and that's because we, we eradicated it worldwide in 1971 using an incredibly cheap vaccine. Actually, the global cost of getting rid of smallpox was about 312 million. Um, that is, you know, an usual metric for these things. One wing of a B2 bomber. Um, and smallpox and oral rehydration are not, you know, not one-offs. There, there are a lot of examples. So um, just between 1999 to 2005, the number of African children who uh, died from measles dropped from over half a million a year to 126,000 a year. 126,000 is still way too many, but it's a heck of a lot better than 500,000. And it's not just about health. So there are technologies like um, uh, uh, cement, corrugated iron, steel wire, piping, nails, nails and tools, um, plastic sheeting, uh, synthetic clothing, uh, rubber soles, bicycles, um, all-weather roads, uh, buses, water pumps, radios, televisions, mobile phones, butane and paraffin for lighting, uh, pens, pencils, cheap paper. A whole load of technologies that were very rare in the developing world 50 years ago are now ubiquitous. And they've improved all sorts of elements of, of the quality of life. So that's one side of the story, but there is another side. It's great having all of these technologies, but you need people to use them, right? Um, and that's the demand side of development is perhaps particularly obvious when it comes to um, uh, education. So surveys of people in, in, in Burkina Faso and Pakistan carried out by the World Bank um, uh, a few years ago found that, that some uh, poor families thought that it was a disastrous idea to educate girls. Why? Because it made them less attractive marriage prospects. They would be unsatisfied uh, with their marriage options, um, and they'd be less skilled at housework. Um, some respondents actually went as far to argue that you know, education is the surest way into prostitution. But those attitudes are now terribly rare, or comparatively terribly rare. Um, and now it is a default option almost everywhere in the world that girls should be in school. And overcoming that barrier is actually a bigger problem than building the schools. So there was a, a wonderful study done by Dion Filmer, who's an economist at the World Bank, um, who basically said, look, if the problem is there aren't enough schools, you'd expect families who live a long way from a school to have lower enrollment rates for their kids than families who live very close to a school. If you're living right next door to a school, why wouldn't you send your kid there? The countries he looked at at the time, the average enrollment rate was 50%. He said if you built a school next door to every house in those countries, mad idea, but if you built a school right next to every house in those countries, the enrollment rate would go up to 53%. That would be a 3% rise. It's not, about, it's not just about supply. Supply is important. It's also about creating the demand for education, the demand for health services, and so on and so forth. And that's Actually, we've managed to do, or you know, it has happened, and that's great. Um, attitudes really have been changing worldwide, and, 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 and one reason that should make people in this town happy um, is because of TV. Uh, TV is spread everywhere, too. Uh, pretty much people get electricity. The first thing they do is buy light bulbs. The second thing they do is buy a TV. Um, incredibly poor families worldwide. A lot of people living on a dollar or two a day. Household has a TV. And careful research by Robert Jensen and, and Emily Oster at the National Bureau of Economic Research looked at what happened as TV services rolled out across India. Um, and the first thing that happened uh, was people started naming their kids after soap opera characters. The second thing that happened uh, was girls' enrollment rates went up, fertility went down, 
um, and they would increase uh, female autonomy in, in uh, areas like household finances. And the reason was, was these soap operas they were watching all had strong female leads in them. And people were watching the shows and going, well, hang on, you know, if this woman has the right to look after money and um, is the one deciding only to have one or two kids, why, why can't we be the same? Um, it, huge impact. Um, uh, there's a wonderful organization in this town called Hollywood, Hollywood Health and Society, um, which is actually trying to use the power of TV intentionally to um, uh, inculcate uh, uh, socially useful messages about things like uh, uh, health practices and so on. Um, and it's, it's planning to do more work in the developing world, and I am delighted about that. Changing attitudes are also really important towards health. So um, I mentioned uh, the oral rehydration stuff early. Um, and the sad fact is that, that, that still lots of places in the world People don't understand that what you really need to do with anybody who has diarrhea is give them as much water as you possibly can. Um, in Kerala in India, um, a state in India, actually 95% of the population does understand that. When you, when you survey them and you question them, they understand that what you should do, give people more water if they've got diarrhea. In West Bengal, only half the population understands that relationship. There's an irony there. West Bengal is where the, uh, 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 the, the camp, the um, uh, refugee camp was, where oral rehydration sort of was first created as a, a, as a cure. But nonetheless, 50% of people in that state don't understand that you should uh, hydrate people with diarrhea. And sadly, West Bengal sees three times the child mortality rates that Kerala sees. Um, but again, thanks to outreach programs and the spread of ideas and so on and so forth, more and more people are understanding the germ theory of disease, more and more people are understanding um, uh, uh, hand washing is important, that breastfeeding is better than bottle feeding. Um, all of this has been a hugely powerful force uh, for better health. Um, and similarly, it's not just uh, health and education, it's also uh, when it comes to civil and political rights. The fact of the matter is that... Um, Attitudes towards what people expect of their governments has changed a huge amount um, uh, uh, over the last 50 years. So, um, I, I mean, I think the, the recent events in, in the Middle East and North Africa are a clear example. If you survey people in the Middle East and North Africa, 87% uh, of them, give or take, say that democracy is the best possible system of government. And now they're demanding it. Um, and uh, you know, that is not something that was true 50 years ago. So these two forces, sort of technology advance on the supply side and uh, changing ideas on the demand side of development, are the two biggest factors behind, I think, the, the change in quality of life worldwide. I think all of that actually has um, important um, uh, implications for, well, people in the aid business, certainly, but, you know, I think more, more, more broadly, just for, for people. Um, uh, one is that I think we have been fixated quite a lot on increasing GDP per capita, and we should care about that. Income matters. But there are lots of ways to sustainably improve the quality of life that don't involve making people a lot richer. Um, and we should really start, you know, focusing a bit more effort on that. So, for example, of the 10 million child deaths that still occur in low-income countries, um, we could prevent one-third of them if every parent used oral rehydration, um, if they practiced breastfeeding, and if they provided insecticide-treated bed nets to their kids. The most expensive of those three interventions is the insecticide-treated uh, bed nets. They're about five bucks. 
We don't have to wait on Tanzania or Ethiopia becoming Luxembourg to be able to afford you know, making sure that everybody has access to a bed net. Um, again, even the poorest of countries uh, can afford universal primary education, and indeed some of the poorest countries already have it. And when it comes to civil and political rights, I think having the police and army, you could really sort of save money if a police and army didn't go around beating people up. Um, you know, it, it, is, it is really cheap not having a coup. Um, so, you know, rights are not an expensive luxury good, right? Um, every, everybody should uh, be able to afford them. Um, and that's particularly good news for people in, in my line of business, the A business, because frankly, we've been blooming awful at um, helping countries speed economic growth. Especially, you know, aid seems to be a particularly bad thing at it. Um, and we, it's not surprising if you believe the story that is all about institutions and all of these things that change very slowly over the long term. Why would you expect aid to have a dramatic impact on, on um, uh, growth rates? Contrary to that, aid has had a huge role to play in improving other areas of quality of life, right? So um, the, the smallpox um, uh, eradication campaign, largely aid-funded. Uh, the, the, the drop in measles uh, uh, deaths in Africa, largely aid-funded. Um, so it seems to me then that, that it's fairly clear where the marginal aid dollar ought to be going. Take, take the example of malaria. That's something we don't yet have a vaccine for. What we do have is bed nets, but they are only a partial and, and comparatively expensive, um, you know, five bucks protection. Um, and that means a lot of people world die, or worldwide still die from the disease. And take, I mean, a very sad story from, from, from uh, a collection of, of uh, interviews with um, people living on a dollar a day called The Voices of the Poor. Uh, child called Grace, uh, who was a five-year-old from Uganda, who was part of a poor rural family, came down with a bout of malaria. The parents, first of all, tried a, a traditional remedy, herbs, and, and, and uh, it didn't work. And so then they borrowed some money, and they bought a bit of chloroquine and some um, aspirin. Uh, briefly, the condition improved, but, it, but, but, but Grace got sicker again. So the parents then sold some chickens um, in order to afford a, a, a trip to a local hospital where she was immediately admitted, because she was very sick by that point. Um, and they said, look, Grace is, is very anemic. She needs a blood transfusion. That'll be $5. And the parents didn't have $5, so they went, they went back home to try and find money from somewhere. Um, but sadly, by the time they got back to the hospital, Grace had already died. Now, if Grace's parents had been richer, she wouldn't have died. But if she'd been given a malaria vaccine, she wouldn't have died either. And frankly, given over the past 50 years, we've been bad at making people rich, but we've been good at developing and rolling out vaccines. I think we should be focusing our efforts on new vaccines. Um, and when it comes to aid policy more generally, um, uh, and as Grace's story uh, uh, demonstrates at the individual level, I, I, again, I don't want to be Panglossian. There is immense and unnecessary suffering still going on worldwide. You know, take a Burma or a Zimbabwe or a North Korea, these countries are, are you know, tyrannies with people suffering from poverty and ignorance and hunger and disease. Um, so there's still a huge amount of work to be done. But the fact that we've seen all of this global progress should sort of counter the idea that it's all hopeless, right? That giving money to Africa is throwing money down a rat hole, um, or, or, or you know, the situation is just hopeless. We know things can get better because they are getting better. Um, and 
they've been getting better ubiquitously and rapidly and everywhere and with a large part played by development assistance. So I guess you know, the, the, the message, at particularly at, at this moment to Washington, is sure, you know, cut funding for development if you want to, if you really need that 0.7% of the federal budget. But if you, you, know, if, you, you know, if you do that, don't try and hide behind the fact, well, it doesn't matter anyway, none of it works. Aid can work, and it has worked, and it does work, and it's played a hugely important role. And so worldwide, far fewer people are just living lives marked by one tragedy after another. Again, that means there's a lot more of nothing going on. And that is absolutely wonderful news, and that aid has played an important role in nothing happening uh, is a reason why we should support it. And so I think nothing really should sell hopefully starting with my book. Thank you very much. Now with questions? So if we want uh, utopia... uh, I promised a lot, didn't I? (laughs) um, I suspect that you'd measure that to me not by, you know, the money or the wealth or uh, other measures, but probably by, it seems to me, happiness, how happy people are Mm would be the main measure of that. I just wonder... Is health one of the main factors that causes people to be happy, or are there other things like autonomy that more closely relate to people being happy, or say um, how many children people have, or they're closest to the community? What, what equates more, most closely with uh, happiness? And if, a uh, second part of the question, if it is health, um, what, what, what should we be focusing on in order to address health? What's sort of the most health important factor? Like I know, uh, you know, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, they said malaria is, like, number one. And uh, depending on that factor, which, which side... Um, Jeez. Sorry. <laughs> Wait, do, you, do you think the, the supply side or the demand side uh, is more important to, to bringing that um, issue into focus? Do you right. need to create a government that... Will will create that demand, or do you need to give incentives to business to create that supply? Right then, um, uh, I don't actually talk much about happiness in the book, but 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 luckily I do have a sideline in happiness. So uh, um, the things that correlate with uh, uh, happiness in these surveys is is. is Income, probably relative rather than absolute income. So being richer than your 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 peers um, and your Friends is more important than being you know, rich in some absolute sense. Um, but that's way behind um, being employed, uh, uh, family, number of friends you've got, um, actually some sort of sense of meaning in life, uh, slash um, uh, 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 attending um, uh, religious services every week. Doesn't matter what kind of religious services. Um, uh, so all of those things seem to be correlated somewhat. I, I should say all of them together explain about 5% of the variation across people in, 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 in their answers to these happiness polls. So the 95% is not explained by things that we can even plausibly change. Um, and that's because a lot of it is, um, in one say, way, shape, or form, genetic, which is actually a reason why I'm very worried by the idea of using happiness studies as a tool for policy. Um, because you'd end up with a policy of eugenics. You'd just sterilize all the unhappy people. Um, I'm not in favor of that, even though I'm very happy. So if that does become the policy, don't sterilize me. Um, uh, 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 Although actually I've got 
two young kids, so sterilize me anyway. But anyway, sorry. Um, so health is a factor. But actually, the really weird thing about health, well, two weird things about health. One is um, uh, people who uh, lose a limb, for example, are a bit unhappy, uh, are unhappy immediately after they lose a limb, but bounce back up to their, their, their set point. It's called level of happiness, where they were before. Um, if you really want to be unhappy because of a health condition, get back pain. Um, things that are chronic conditions that you can never quite be sure when they're going to strike you really hard. That, that, that really does seem to have, you know, compared to other health conditions, quite a, quite a big impact. So, again, if I was to use happiness to, uh, polls to push policy, which I'm not usually in favor of, I'd be saying, let's find the answer to back pain. Um, uh, but the other weird thing about health and happiness is... Uh, if you ask doctors to rank how healthy people are, um, the relationship to happiness is pretty weak. If, on the other hand, you ask people how healthy are you, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, you consider yourself incredibly healthy or not very healthy at all, those answers and happiness are very closely combined. Happy people think they're healthier. Um, <laughs> good thing to be happy then, right? Uh, 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 so... Leaving happiness aside and thinking about health priorities, I, I, I think you, you, you posed a, a very interesting question. Um, uh, I think that the Gates Foundation is working on this vaccine stuff is wonderful. Um, I was just there the day before yesterday, and I said to them, I think you need to do more, side, more on the demand side as well. Um, so, uh, Actually, there's more work at the moment going on on the supply side, on things like creating new vaccines. And that's partially because um, you know, a lot of these vaccines uh, are developed for profit, right? So there's a, um, there are people who have the incentive to do it anyway, thank you very much. Um, whereas this demand side stuff, less so. I mean, sorry, there's an advertising industry out there, but there, there is much of an advertising industry in rural Niger. Um, and so um, thinking more about Advertising in rural Niger, um, I mean, advertising public goods, but um, advertising in rural Niger, I think, is a really underappreciated and underfunded part of the, the sort of general effort to make the world a better place. Well, my question is, um, I, I do have a sense that things are better worldwide, uh, technologically, discoveries, education, health. Um, my question is, could you speak at all to, uh, are we better people? Are we, it seems to me that we're still as savage as before. We kill each other and we subjugate each other and we have more slaves than before. And it just seems to me, again, okay. and I'm wondering if you have anything to say to that. I mean, is, is there any hope there? Are, are we as a, as, as a species uh, becoming nicer, better? I don't think human nature has radically altered over the last... I mean, it, it would be against the spirit of human nature to radically alter in a short period, right? So people are still people. Um, the situations in which you put them matter a lot. So um, I'm blanking on the name of the guy who did the experiments, but all those experiments about uh, 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 people being told they were part of a test where they should electrocute... Oh, the Milgram, thank you. Um, uh, electrocute uh, subjects if they you know, got the answers wrong. Um, you know, people respond to authority, and I, you know, I doubt that's changed. I would say um, maybe it's that the authority has got slightly better. So 
for example, I mean, it used to be a sport of kings to burn cats, and we don't kind of do that kind of thing anymore. And I mean, it used to be you know, the norm that, 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 that uh, you would whip your slave. Well, now it's not the norm to whip, and it's not the norm to have slaves. Um, so it's not so much that we're, we're better people necessarily, it's that the cues guiding our behavior have, have changed in a way that actually means we're nicer to each other. Um, so I'm kind of optimistic there, as long as it keeps on going that way. Yeah. Um, earlier in your talk, you said, by any measure that you care to name, uh, we see progress. But I noticed that completely absent from your talk was the health of the planet, mm -hmm. the environment. Mm -hmm. By that measure, well, if you're familiar with Jared Diamond's work, you know that every civilization that has collapsed has exhausted its land base, its resources. And it looks to me like we're pretty close to doing the same thing, but on a global basis. So can you talk to that as an economist? Yeah, um, sorry, first of all, you're... You're right, I did talk about it, and it's a very important subject. Um, uh, so thank you. Um, one of the reasons I don't talk about it in this book is that it hasn't yet slowed down all of the indicators of, 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 of human progress, if you will, uh, that I'm talking about. So um, while you know, there's no uh, Alouatra grebe anymore because the last one died out in 1981, for humans... Um, what we're doing to the planet hasn't yet had a big enough impact to slow human progress. Hasn't yet. Hasn't yet had a big enough impact to slow rates of progress. It will if we don't do something about it. So I should mention it because looking forward, um, if we don't do something, I mean, not just about climate change, although... We're going to say, let's get a carbon tax or a cap and trade, whatever we can get through the various legislatures. Let's have one quick, please. Um, you know, it's not, but it's not just that. Right? I mean, you're pointing out, you mentioned that, that uh, we are using a range of resources in, in a completely unsustainable manner. Now, I'd say two things. One is, we should deal with that. Um, and, you know, it's going to take taxes, it's going to take... Uh, uh, a range of different taxes um, uh, and, and, and it's going to take uh, a lot more research and it's going to take you know, regulations and so on and so forth. Um, I would say from the point of view of development and sort of the world as a whole, this is a rich people's problem to solve at least. And the reason I say that is uh, the poorest 600 million people on the planet earn about 1% of what the richest 600 million people on the planet earn. You could double the number of those 600 million people and it would have the same impact on consumption as raising the income of the richest people by 1%. Every year we raise the income of the richest people by 2.2%. You could double the incomes of the poorest 600 million and it would have the same impact as increasing the incomes of the richest 600 million by 1%. If there's unsustainable consumption going on, which there is, it's a rich world problem, and you know, we, need to, we need to pony up. We need to uh, get with the program. And the last thing I would want is for the environment to be used as, as a reason to try and stop those 600 million people having a slightly better life. Sorry, those 600 million poor people 
having, having a slightly better life. So this is an issue we should deal with urgently, but it is not an issue that we should use to try and lock the very poorest and most disadvantaged of the world's population into poverty. Uh, you didn't address uh, uh, issues of uh, uh, fertility and uh, avoiding uh, pregnancy throughout the world. And the Bush administration, they, uh, they precluded funds going throughout the world to preclude uh, birth control. Really a, a woman's right um, to choose how many kids to have. Um, and there are sort of there are two sides to that. I mean, again, it's a supply and demand story, sort of. But, but in a way, the supply side of that one is comparatively easy. Um, access to contraception, for example, has been growing worldwide quite dramatically. The, the problem is more on the demand side. There's a, there's a gap in, in most developing countries. If you ask men how many children they want to have in their family, the number they come up with is larger than the, the number that, that women come up with. Combine that with... Um, social norms in villages uh, that quite often um, mean certain forms of, of, of birth control are considered un, unsuitable. And it le means that a lot of women end up having more kids than they want to have, which, yeah. Um, uh, as, I, mean, I think it's just a human rights issue. Um, and, and that's the main reason I'm, I'm, I have to say I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about it. Um, uh, um, I'm still of the opinion you could have a, a, a few more people, and as long as we get the sustainability issues right, all in all, that would be a good thing, because I, I like people. Um, and so, you know, more people, all else equal is good. Um, uh, but definitely from a human rights perspective, that's a problem. Not to go on about it, but it's, it's a problem that's getting better. Uh, uh, fertility rates um, everywhere are, are dropping um, quite dramatically. Um, quite fast. And um, they can, in a really rather short period, drop um, incredibly low to sort of below replacement rates. So Iran, for example, now has a fertility rate below replacement, whereas 40 years ago, the average woman had seven kids. Um, so in a fairly short period, you know, if you get things right, um, and the things include improving child health, ensuring um, uh, both access and acceptability of contraceptive use, um, you can really just dramatically change outcomes in this area and in, 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 a, in a way that's good for all sorts of reasons.